We're making our way here on in the Sunday teachings through the Gospel of Matthew. Great opportunity, and this morning we want to look at a brief passage in Matthew in chapter 3, and although it's brief, it's hugely important. We will see why in the next few minutes. So we're going to look, uh, I'll read it, you can listen along, Matthew chapter 3, I'll begin at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him. There's a little bit of perplexity here in John the Baptist's mind. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Verse 15, but Jesus answered. Now this is very important what Jesus says. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us. Note that word, us. Jesus is referring to something that's happening right here in this moment. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We'll need to ponder those words in a moment. Then John consented. Verse 16 And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Note those images, someone, something emerging from water, and then a dove. We'll come back to that. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, and then the words that I would argue are the most important in the entire passage, with whom I am well pleased. High praise for the key person in all of Scripture. What we want to look at this morning is Jesus at the Jordan, specifically why he is good News. One reason is that he comes to become one of us. He becomes one of us. Now, this is partly what gives rise to John, John's perplexity here. He can't get his head around Jesus coming out to this mass movement. It's like a movement, a revival of sorts of repentance and receiving of the forgiveness of sins. And John knows there is something hugely unique about Jesus. Maybe he doesn't yet in his own mind have a complete picture. Who does? (laughs) But John thinks this feels backwards. He ought to be baptizing me. Why is he coming out here and waiting in line with all these avowed sinners that know they're not right with God but want to get right with God, why is Jesus joining in this movement? And why does he want to take part by receiving baptism? So here's Jesus' answer. Let it be so now, John, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all Righteousness. No, in that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness, what's Jesus talking about? My suggestion is he's talking about precisely what he's doing, coming, doing something that perplexes John. 
The fulfilling of righteousness in Jesus' mind here is him, the one who doesn't need forgiveness or repentance, coming and joining in with others who do. He is taking part in a sinner's baptism. Why is this? Well, let's go back to the prophets. Jesus himself referred back to the the law and the prophets many times as the keys to understanding his mission. In the book of Isaiah, which Jesus refers to many times, we read this. This is Isaiah 53, verse 11. He would cause many to be accounted righteous. He would cause many to be accounted righteous. That's Isaiah 53, verse 11. It sounds like something out of Romans or Galatians. It's saying that when the Messiah comes, he will do... He will do something that will make it possible for a holy and just God to declare people that are not right with God to be right with God. They will be accounted righteous. Now, how is that going to happen? Well, we see, we know the ultimate answer to that, of course, is Christ's own death and resurrection. Amen. But in in this scene at the baptism, Jesus is starting something in process that will culminate with his death and resurrection. And that also is referenced in the prophets. Now, I just read Isaiah 53, 11. He would count many, he would cause many to be accounted righteous. In the very next verse in Isaiah, Listen to this. This is Isaiah 53, 12. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He will be numbered with the transgressors, counted as being one of the transgressors, categorized among sinners. That would be his mission when this Messiah comes. So according to Isaiah now, and apparently according to Jesus himself, How will Jesus cause many people to be accounted righteous? People like me and you. Answer, part of the answer, the beginning of the answer, is by him being numbered with the transgressors. Now, of course, needless to say, I think, the climactic fulfillment of him being numbered with the transgressors is when he goes to the cross And interestingly, just as here at the Jordan he is surrounded by sinners coming to get baptized, that's how he's going to die, in between two criminals. So at the beginning and the end of his mission, he's among sinners. He's numbered with the transgressors. And he starts that identifying with sinners right here. The whole movement John had spawned, he started speaking about God returning to his people. God was going to do a great redemptive work. He will so prepare the way of the Lord. John preached out of Isaiah chapter 40 about God revisiting his people and renewing his people. But if we wanted to meet him, says John, we have to repent of our sins. We have to seek his forgiveness And we have to demonstrate that by receiving sinner's baptism. So not a few dozen, not a few hundred, probably on the scale of numbers of thousands of people were coming out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole region of the Jordan. Read back at the beginning of Matthew 3. 
This was a huge movement. And among these crowds coming to get right with God was one person that was already right with God. But he's there because he wants to identify himself with all of them. When he goes down in the water, he wasn't the first one that day, and he wasn't the last. It was just his turn. I often ponder this and marvel at it, Jesus having to wait in line. My wife told me once that I was the most impatient person she ever met. Wasn't that a compassionate thing to say, you think? I, I, did, I can't stand waiting in a queue, getting into a movie in a, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant where you have to go, you know, like a cafeteria or something. I just, it gets to me. Now here's Jesus. He's already humbling himself to an infinite degree by becoming human and then by committing to go out to this sinner's baptism thing. And I'll bet you he had to wait his turn. Did you ever think of that? There would have been others that were already baptized that day ahead of him, and then there's somebody waiting next to the line, and in the middle of it all, there's Jesus. He's identifying himself with these people, not with the righteous people in Jerusalem, but with the sinners that know they're sinners that are going far out. It's in the wilderness, chapter 3, verse 1, Matthew. That's not an accident. John staged his ministry in the wilderness. Theologically, that represents a place far from God. God had established the city of the great king where his presence dwells. That's Jerusalem, but this is somewhere far from there. That's where John was ministering. The people, these people, who know they're not right with God but want to be, they go out and listen to John. And as you see these crowds going on, if you knew how to recognize Jesus, there he would be unobtrusively, not making a spectacle of himself, but there he is. He's making their situation, his own. I think that statement is important for someone here this morning. He's making, Christ is making their situation his own. He's making our burdens his. He's making our needs his. When I was about 12 or maybe 13, my family sent me to a summer camp in New England. It was a great time. I went for three consecutive summers. It was really helpful. One of the things we did was hiking, and there was some fairly serious hiking in terms of, given the age we all were, in terms of distance and the, the challenging nature of the trails we took, very, very steep, up decent-sized mountains and so forth. And there was times when physical fatigue, just lugging, you know, you have a pack full of your food and your sleeping bag and all that stuff on your back. And we would get, oh boy, can't we take a break? Can't we take a break? And we were trundling down this trail once and I was really feeling it. And this, the counselor, it happened that one of the counselors was right behind me. I think he could tell I was struggling. He says, Dave, are you okay? And I said, can't we take a break? <laughs> the standard answer. And he said, it's not too much further, Dave. Hold on. A little while longer. We're going to take a break. There's a stream up here. You can have a drink of waters. Keep going. So I thought, all right, all right. I didn't want to complain. I didn't want to complain. I will always remember this moment. I was going along this thing strapped to my shoulders. All of a sudden, I felt the weight of the pack lighten. And I, I looked behind me. And there he was. He was reaching forward to me from behind me 
lifting the weight of the pack off of my shoulders. Now, he did, unfortunately, he didn't do that for the entire hike, but, but he did it for, you know, a few hundred yards. It just gave my shoulders a break. I never forgot that. The straps were still over my shoulders. I was not out of the situation, but he relieved the weight. If I can come in, where's this image? Christ coming and joining us in the Jordan. He shouldn't need to be there. He doesn't, for his own sake, need to be there. We do. But he makes our situation his own, which means he shoulders our burdens. He helps us carry them. Some of you know a situation Velma and I are facing at the moment. Our son, John, who many years ago attended this church, he grew up here. He's now 41. Uh, he lives in Scotland. He's a teacher. And on April 17th, he had a stroke, and he lost all speech. So we're still reeling from this. Velma is over there as, as I speak, uh, visiting and just helping out in practical ways. We don't know yet what the outcome is going to be. He's getting top-class therapy. Well, that was fortunate. There was a, a stroke rehab unit quite near his house, and so he's there for three or four days a week. So there's lots that's going on. He's been sending comical emails to friends of his and so forth and uh, just relearning how to do that kind of stuff. But it's going to be a long, slow road. We're keeping this sort of not too public at the moment. So if we can just say, okay, to tell your friends about it, not email or not uh, Facebook. If we, if we can keep it off Facebook, there's confidentiality reasons relating to their family over in Scotland, if we can honor that. I'm just saying so you can, telling you so you can join us in praying alongside Tony Grandy and many others here. When I get burdened about that situation, I think, what's going to happen with John vocationally in the days to come? He had a really, really, really good job. Well, what's going to happen with that? And I can feel the weight of the anxiety coming down on me, and I remember this scene at the Jordan River, and I realize God sent a Savior who bears our burdens. God sent someone who makes our burdens his. It's the counselor coming saying, Davy talking to me. That's what they called me. Davy, hang on. You're going to get there. And then I felt all of a sudden something. The straps didn't go off my shoulders, but the weight did. That might be for you this morning. He becomes one of us. Jesus at the Jordan. First reason, he's good news. He identifies with us and he becomes one of us. Second reason, the Jesus at the Jordan is good news. Note the detail uh, Matthew gives about the moment the Spirit comes. Two things happen seemingly simultaneously. One is he goes up from the water. This, to me, is an evidence that baptism was then done, done by immersion because he had to come up out of the river after he was baptized. Well, what was he doing in the river if he wasn't being immersed? It seems to suggest that. So he's coming up from the water. Get that image in your mind, emerging from the water. And in that moment, a dove descends, seemingly lands on his shoulder or his head. We don't have all of the details. Now, 
You don't have to be a rocket scientist. My friend Keith Miner has always used to say that. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to catch this. There's an echo going on here of a key moment in Old Testament history that evolves some, the, the, the subsiding of water and the appearance of a dove. We all know where that is. It's at the end of the story of the great flood. The floodwaters are coming down the ship. The ark settles on the mountains of Ararat. Noah sends out a dove. It means the life on earth now in, in God's world is about to begin again. Despite judgment, which was catastrophic and severe, life is going to begin again. That, I would argue, is the message of the flood story. Now note something that God speaks to Noah shortly after he sends out the dove and all that. By the way, the first thing Noah does when they come out of the ark, I trust you all know this, is worship. They set up an altar and they worship God. First thing we do after we get saved, we should worship. First thing Israel did when they got across the Red Sea, they sang that great victory psalm, horse and rider, remember that one? They sing that on the east bank of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's going glug, glug, glug down into the bottom of the sea, and they're singing a victory psalm. Have a look, Exodus 15. First thing they do after they got saved is worship. I love it. And now we see the same thing uh, even earlier in redemption history with Noah. He's saved through the flood, and they put up an altar afterwards, and they worship God. I think it's in chapter 8, verse 12. Now, on the back of that, at the beginning of Genesis 9, we need to catch this. And in the middle of that, of course, the dove thing with Noah, that's how he knows that the waters have indeed gone back because the third dove doesn't return to him in the ark. We come to chapter 9. Don't miss this. We come to Genesis 9 where God says these words to Noah. Four words. Be fruitful and multiply. Do those words, if you've read Genesis, sound vaguely familiar. Of course they do. They're precisely what God says in Genesis chapter 1. This is chapter 9. This is many generations later. In Genesis 1, God says them when he's creating the world, and he says to the first humans in 128, be fruitful and multiply. Now God is renewing, note that word, he is renewing that mandate with Noah. Translation, it's a new beginning. And part of the emblem, biblically, of that new beginning is that dove. God's beginning the world anew. Why do we need to know this? We need to know it because we have an enemy, Satan, who likes to lie. And we have emotions that are insecure, that are very vulnerable to believing the worst and getting lied to. And the lies often take the shape of, well, this time you've blown it so bad, it's finished. You're finished. It's over. Kaputsky, padlock. Done. God doesn't work that way. If ever there was an it's over time, it would have been the flood. But no, God preserved humanity in the flood and then sends the dove enters in, that emblem of renewal. And then God says to Adam, to Noah and his family, the same things he says to Adam and Eve at the beginning. God is starting again. One of the great heroes of the Old Testament had, unfortunately, more than his share of the experience of failure. 
I'm thinking, of course, of King David. Partway through his career, when he's already ruling as king, he is unfaithful to his own wife. He cheats on another man, takes advantage of his wife. That's Bathsheba. You know that whole episode, I'm sure. God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David because God knows what happens, and then because God knows, Nathan knows. Nathan Nathan confronts David. David is smitten in his conscience. He's blown to pieces. He realizes how serious what he has done is. And in Psalm number 51, it makes some good reading. It's, It's not light reading, but it's good. Psalm 51, it's the psalm David writes after this experience of sin, and then the severe conviction, but also the beginning of hope that God would forgive him. And notice what David says in that psalm. I'll just read one verse, Psalm 51, verse 13. When you restore me, because that's his hope, his confidence now, because God does forgive, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He would even have some sort of a pastoral teaching ministry. David knows this. My life isn't over because God is the God who begins again. Shortly after the scene in Matthew that we're looking at now at the Jordan, there's first there's the Sermon on the Mount right after this, and then after that Jesus goes around for three or four chapters doing uh, miracles, mighty signs. And in one of those is the man they lower through the roof of the house. You remember they rip open the ceiling, lower the paralyzed man down. And he says two things to this man. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. You like the pairing of those two co- statements. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. New beginning. Your sins are forgiven. It, you, everything that could have held you back is not going to hold you back. So now you can begin again. Now get up off that stretcher. Your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. I'm giving you back your future. Your life is not over. Rise and walk. It's similar with the, uh, the famous story of the woman trapped or caught in adultery. And she's brought to Jesus. And there's that brief dialogue. Let him who has sins cast the first stone and all that. And then her accusers all drift away. And there's a brief moment where it's just Jesus himself talking to the woman herself. And he says, where are your, where are your accusers? And she says, they they have all gone. And she, and then he says, neither do I condemn you, condemn you. And then these words, go and sin no more. Now that word go there, we need to be careful how we interpreted it, interpret it. It doesn't mean go in the sense of get out of here, get away from me. No, it means go start living again. Go your way. Go live your life. I'm giving you back your future because I've declared your sin forgiven. This Savior is good news because he begins the world anew. He begins your world anew. He begins my world anew. He comes to give us back what the enemy would take away, our future. Remember that image of the dove. Third reason. Jesus at the Jordan is good news, is that he has God's endorsement. He has God's endorsement. Chapter 3, verse 17, as Jesus emerges from the water, a voice comes down from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well 
pleased. We don't hear a God commending anyone like that anywhere else in Scripture. Go and look for it. It ain't there. This is unique, cover to cover. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's like a seal of approval, a thumbprint of approval. I am with this man. I'm with this new prophet, this new Son of God, this Messiah. God's seal of approval. There are pre-echoes and post-echoes of this moment. If we go back to Isaiah 42, Behold my servant. This is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Behold my servant in whom my soul delights. Think of it. God has a soul. Interesting thought. God has a soul, and God looks at Christ, and he says, this is my servant in whom my soul delights. I'm sure the the dads and moms that were up here this morning dedicating these little children, their souls delight in those children. And God is saying his soul delights in his own son, Jesus. I have put my spirit on him. Shortly after this moment at the Jordan where God commends and endorses Jesus, he does it again. That's in the transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5, they're up on that mountain. Peter, James, and John are invited to go and witness this amazing moment. And Jesus is clothed with glory that reminds us of uh, God's glory at Mount Sinai or God's glory when they dedicate Solomon's temple. All those glory moments are coming back in this appearing of Jesus in his glory. But it wasn't just about visible glory. It was about a verbal endorsement Jesus receives in that transfiguration. Matthew 17, 5, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. God is endorsing him. Part of the reason it says there, listen to him, I would argue, is that only maybe a dozen verses prior to this moment, Jesus has committed to go the way of the cross. The Son of Man must suffer, he says. And Simon Peter, the disciple that liked to wear the sheriff's badge, came and tried to set Jesus straight. And Jesus did the not overly diplomatic thing of calling him the devil. Get behind me, Satan. So you know where Peter's attempt to correct Jesus went. Now, moments after that, God brings Jesus, his son, whom he's about to commend, up to the top of the mountain, and they bring Jesus, pardon me, they bring Simon and James and John along. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And I often wonder if the little phrase, listen to him, is addressed in no small measure to Simon Peter. Simon Jesus is right. This thing about him having to suffer, he's right. You listen. God's endorsing his son. But all of that pales compared to something that's still yet to happen. And God telling us that Jesus is the one we can trust. It happens on the morning of the third day. The disciples first, a group of women, the male disciples later show up and the tomb is empty. They meet an angel there. He is not here. He has risen. They go, and shortly after that, or 40 days after that, he doesn't just rise, but he ascends into heaven and takes his place at the right hand of God. There is quite literally no more wonderful or more exalted position anywhere, I mean, in the universe, 
and sitting at the right hand of God. And that's where God enthrones Jesus. What's he doing? In front of the whole cosmos. Angels, archangels, all the nations who will eventually see Jesus in that honor at the end of the age when he returns are going to see him seated at the right hand of God. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an endorsement. But the earliest endorsement in one sense is what happens at the river. You can see in the picture we have, there's John the Baptist kind of in awe. (gasps) The dove comes down and then this voice. This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Question for us this morning, I come to a close. Will we trust the one whom God has endorsed? Yuri, can we have the next image? I'm going to give a word of knowledge about this lady. She's crazy. (laughs) This is not Velma, my wife. Not only does it not even really look like her, but my good wife, Velma, has been known to summon her husband to change a ceiling light bulb because it would require her standing on a chair. Okay, She is not fussy with heights, so I don't think this is my wife. This is called abseiling. People do it the side of cliffs or the side of skyscrapers. One thing we can say for her, I don't know where the image is from, when it was taken, I know zero about the lady, except this. She trusts that rope. How are we going to get through things like Tony Grandy being so sick? How are we going to find God's victory in that? How's my family going to cope with a 41-year-old professor that had his speech taken away in a, in a stroke. He's getting therapy, there's beginnings of signs, but still it's a massive setback. How do we deal with stuff like that? We look to the one who came and joined us in the river, who came to share our burdens. We look to the one, the next image, Mace. That woman trusts that rope. Question, will we trust this Savior? the one whom God has endorsed. To conclude, just to review, turn it back to Peter. Jesus at the Jordan. Three reasons why he is good news. He's good news when he goes to the cross and rises again. Amen, a thousand amens. But you know what? He doesn't save the good news for that. It starts emerging here at the beginning of his mission. He's good news because he becomes one of us. He's with us in our river. He makes our situations our own, our burdens his own. He shares in what we're up against. He identifies with us. Second reason, he's good news. He begins the world anew. That lie that says, this time you've blown it so bad, it's over. That's not the voice of God. If God can restore King David to a public teaching ministry... He can restore you to what he has for you. Seek him in genuine repentance. Maybe you might need to fast, whatever you have to do to get back right with God. He's good at bringing people back to himself. But his promises are always the dove. The dove comes, a new beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. God will start us over. That's why second reason Jesus at the Jordan is good news. Third, Jesus has God's endorsement. Whatever it is, 
that rope we have in him will not break. Whatever it is you're up against this morning, this point in your life, you can trust the one whom God has endorsed. I commend him to you. Amen.